The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let's listen together as Luke describes this astonishing scene in chapter one of his gospel, beginning with the 26th verse. Listen now for God's word to you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. My sister-in-law, Meg, an accomplished art historian, once told me that Gabriel's visit to announce Mary's impending pregnancy is probably the most commonly painted scene from the Bible. Now, now that's a hard fact to confirm, but Meg did note that early Renaissance Italian master Sandro Botticelli himself painted the Annunciation eight times. In addition to the thousands of Annunciation canvases displayed in the world's museums, 
Meg also pointed out that Mary and Gabriel appear in frescoes decorating the walls of homes and on altarpieces in chapels all around the Mediterranean. And there's more. Down through the centuries, this scene has found a place in the arts of almost every culture. There are Ethiopian, Korean, Brazilian, Lakota Sioux, and American folk annunciations. An incredibly deep and diverse group of artists have embraced the annunciation as an evocative story. And what's not to like? In today's text, an angel and a human converse about God's plans for her life and for the life of the world. Luke provides fantastic raw material for the creative mind. What happens when heaven and earth collide? What does an angel look like? And perhaps most important, how should I imagine Mary? Is she sitting, standing, kneeling? Does Mary look like she wants to curl up in a little ball and hide? Rossetti's treatment. Does she tower over Gabriel's bent frame like a queen, Botticelli? Does she hold her hands up in protest, Filippo Lippi? Does Mary's mouth drop open as Gabriel steps out of a cloudy portal, Rembrandt? Or, or is she focused on the task at hand, playing a, a flute as Chi would have it? Does she seem to be asking, who, me, Brazile? Does she seem stupefied? Burn Jones? Or is she genuinely overflowing with joy? Pontormo. So many painters from, from so many cultures have put their own spin on Mary's posture, Mary's ethnicity, and Mary's demeanor as she listens to Gabriel spit out his shocking news. Sidebar, if you would like to fall down a spiritually rich Google hole late in the season of Advent. Go home this evening and type paintings of the Annunciation into your search engine. You'll thank me for it. Or better yet, if you can possibly manage it, there's still time to go and see one of my favorite Annunciations right here in New York City. A few weeks ago, I made my annual circuitous trip via the M4 bus all the way to the northernmost tip of Manhattan and the cloisters. I cherish the cloisters. It's a quiet space, a, a solid place, sitting high up above the Hudson and Harlem rivers. Built in the mid-20th century, the stone walls and lovely gardens of the museum give it a much older, and as its title suggests, monastic feel. 
The Cloisters is the perfect venue for viewing the Met's wonderful collection of medieval art. And it also happens to be the home to a simply fabulous annunciation, the Marode altarpiece, a portion of this great work can be found on today's bulletin cover. Dated around 1427, the Marode altarpiece comes from the studio of Flemish painter Robert Campen. Like other Annunciation painters, Campen dresses the players and the space with costumes familiar to his culture, his viewers. In Campen's painting, Gabriel has arrived in a typical Flemish kitchen. But the archangel's luminous presence does not seem to have made an impression on Mary. Maybe the winged messenger has not spoken. <laughs> or maybe Holland Carter, art critic for the New York Times, has it right. Carter cleverly compares Mary's steady gaze to a focused subway rider. You New Yorkers, you know what I'm talking about. Mary's that reader who, even when all kinds of crazy stuff is going on around her on the sixth train, is able to maintain a steady gaze on the dog-eared book in her lap. Mary here is unflappable. She's focused. She sits on the floor of her kitchen, reclining against a bench, working her way through a page-turner. In a way, this Mary sort of reminds me of my daughter, a rabid reader who never seems to use furniture in the way God intended it. <laughs> to me, Campen's Annunciation feels almost relaxed, almost ordinary, almost. Intruding on Mary's chill demeanor is, of course, the extraordinary a kneeling angel. And, and one other surprising thing, if you look closely, this is a sort of Where's Waldo exercise, if you look closely, you can see a tiny baby entering the room through one of the round windows on the left. In Campen's Annunciation, this ultra-calm Mary is visited by an angel with burnished wings, and this messenger announces the arrival of a miniature Jesus who, holding a cross, slides into her life on a sunbeam. Okay, it's a little weird. <laughs> but I like it. And in the end, I think this painting radiates some pretty good theology. How so? Let's talk. Every once in a while, someone will ask me what I think of the virgin birth. Can you, preacher, someone will press with a smile, say the Apostles' Creed without crossing your fingers? And my answer is yes. But then, if I have time, I will talk about how the creed has meant different things to me at different moments in my life. 
And if I have more time, I will mention the fact that Presbyterians keep adding more and more creeds to our confessions because God's Spirit keeps calling us to confess our faith in new ways and in response to the world that God loves. And finally, I will talk about the fact that every, every human attempt, including the creeds, to describe God falls short. Now, usually by this point in my explanation, people have forgotten their original question and just remembered that they're late for a visit to the dentist. If I'm in a hurry when somebody asks me about the virgin birth, I will typically respond with, why do people get so hung up on biology when reading Luke chapter 1? You know who doesn't obsess about biology here? Mary. Mary's mind quickly goes somewhere else. It's right there in the text. The angel speaks to her with tender care. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary sits with these words. She's perplexed by these words. She ponders these words. You have found favor favor with God. These are the sort of words that can fill your heart with confusion and courage, maybe even love. And, and then at the end of today's text, Gabriel signs off by saying nothing will be impossible with God. And all that gets Mary dreaming. She dreams of impossible things. What sort of impossible things? A baby? Maybe. But think about it. Gabriel has just announced the author of the universe is going to partner with you. You, a poor, unwed Jewish woman to save the world. What seems more impossible to Mary? The birth of a child or God picking her, tapping her, reaching out to embrace her, a person of no power or influence, a woman without a single Twitter follower and with zero economic prospects, Nothing in her day-to-day -day life has prepared Mary for the possibility that God might have the slightest interest in her. And then, bam, Gabriel shows up sitting next to her on the sixth train. This is the testimony of our faith. This is the Annunciation, according to Luke. This is the good news, Advent trumpets. God, who was always had a hand in turning history upside down, is still at it, still making unconventional choices in an effort to save the world. You have found favor with the Most High. These words percolate through Mary. They lift her spirit. You can hear it when when Mary speaks again, or I should say sings, the next scene in Luke's gospel is Mary 
belting out the Magnificat. She opens her mouth and wraps her tongue around all kinds of impossible stuff. Listen to it. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. At some point every Christmas at the Black Johnson household, my wife Amy will pull out this book, Truman Capote's Melancholy and Beautiful Story, A Christmas Memory, and she will begin to read. We listen with rapt attention to the story of a young boy, seven years old, and his much older cousin, 67 years old. They are outcasts within their own family. But fortunately, these two souls have each other. Throughout the story, the boy calls his older cousin, my friend. These two mismatched friends scrape all year long to collect enough money so that when Christmas rolls around, they will be able to buy the ingredients to make fruitcakes. Together, they collect the flour, the eggs, the candied fruit. They mix the cake batter and bake them. And then they distribute their humble gifts to a motley collection of friends, deliverymen, bus drivers. Finally, on Christmas Day, having delivered their weighty cakes, the young man and his much older cousin go out and fly the kites that they made for each other as Christmas presents. It's at this point you have to picture the two lying on their backs with their loyal dog, Queenie, looking at the clouds that their conversation always gets me. I'd like to read a paragraph from Capote's story to you this morning. My, how foolish I am, my friend cries, suddenly alert, like a woman remembering too late she has biscuits in the oven. You know what I've always thought, she asks in a tone of discovery and not smiling at me, but at a point beyond. I've always thought a body would have to be sick and dying before they saw the Lord. And I imagined that when he came, it would be like looking at the Baptist church window, pretty as, as, as colored glass with, with the sun pouring through, such a shine you don't know it's getting dark. And it's been a comfort to think of that shine taking away all the spooky feeling. But I'll wager it never happens. 
I'll wager at the very end a body realizes the Lord has already shown himself. That things as they are, her hand circles in a gesture that gathers clouds and, and kites and grass and queenie pawing earth over her bone. Just what they've always seen was seeing him. As for me, I could leave the world with today in my eyes. I'll wager that at the very end, a body realizes the Lord has already shown himself. Amy's eyes always glisten when she reads that sentence. Mine too. This is the gift, my friends, that Advent hands us. We who are battered by pandemic waves and discouraged by life's turns, Advent gestures in a broad circle and says, pay attention. You too have found favor with God. My friends, is the most impossible thing in the story of the Annunciation, the baby? Or is it Mary? Can we separate the two? I don't think so. And I don't think you can tell the story of Christmas without pausing to acknowledge the one who seeks out ordinary people and ordinary moments, giving fruitcake and kites in the clear blue sky moments to let us know how much we are loved and to enlist us all in activities that will surely change the world. Friends, go out into the final days of Advent in peace. Dream big dreams, sacred dreams for yourself and for the world. Share when you can in others' joy. And do not be afraid, for love is on the way. Amen.